Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Crash Course Catholicism. So this episode is on the Sacrament of Confirmation. Now, this is a notoriously tricky sacrament to talk about. It's often kind of misunderstood and downplayed. And I think that one of the reasons why we tend to misunderstand confirmation is that, first of all, it's the sacrament of the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about this before, right, that the Holy Spirit can seem at times to be a bit abstract and a bit sort of intangible. So, you know, with all of the other sacraments, there's always something really tangible that we can kind of latch onto and see and understand. So in the Eucharist, we receive the body and blood of Christ. Or, you know, in marriage, these two people standing in front of me become kind of cosmically bound to each other for life. Okay, that's all really easy and fine. But then it comes to confirmation, and we're told that in this sacrament, we receive the Holy Spirit. And it's like, okay, well, what does that actually mean? You know? And I mean, we know what it means in the abstract. Like we hear all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we're told that it's just like Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended in tongues of flame and the apostles started speaking in tongues and baptizing people. And we can sort of think, well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never been to a confirmation where people are behaving like the apostles did at Pentecost. And personally, I don't remember feeling that different when I was confirmed as a child. So we can sort of start to think, well, you know, I mean, really, what does this sacrament do? And is it really that necessary? Why is it so important? And this kind of thinking can lead us to treat confirmation almost like a kind of symbolic, you know, coming of age ceremony where, you know, the young person stands up publicly in front of everyone and confirms that they would like to be a Catholic and then the bishop gives them a blessing and it's all very nice. But actually, that is not at all what confirmation is about. And this is something that was clarified in the Council of Trent in the 16th century. In one of their decrees, it says that confirmation is not an idle ceremony. It is a true and proper sacrament. And if you remember, a sacrament is a channel of really important and specific graces that help to sanctify us. So confirmation is really important and it has an impact on our souls that is real and profound and unique. Okay, so what is confirmation then and what does it actually do to our souls? Well, the key, the interpretive key to understanding confirmation actually comes right at the very beginning of this section of the Catechism on Confirmation in point number 1285. It says, confirmation is necessary for the completion of baptismal grace. Okay, now what does that mean? Confirmation completes baptismal grace. Well, let's think about it. What does baptism do? Baptism makes us children of God, right? We are spiritually reborn and we become Christians. Now, what does it mean to be a child of God? Like, what is the job of a Christian? Because that's not just like a passive state, right? Like, we don't get baptized and then go like, oh, cool, okay, I'm a Christian now, like, my job's done. No, if you are the child of a king, that means that you have responsibilities. So what are they? Well, 
We find an answer to this question in one of the documents of Vatican II on the vocation of the laity. It's called Apostolicum Actuositatem. In this document, it tells us that Christians are called to two things. First of all, personal holiness. Okay, we're called to be saints. And then second of all, we're called to something called the apostolate which is a word that just means bringing Christ to the rest of the world, sharing Christ with others just like the first apostles did. And this apostolate, it's not just an optional extra. Like, it's not something nice that we could do if we feel generous, but, you know, the main thing is that I become a saint. No. So this document tells us that the Christian vocation by its very nature is also a vocation to the apostolate. So those two things are inseparable. In fact, it goes on to say that any member who fails to make this proper contribution to the development of the church must be said to be useful neither to the church nor to himself. (laughs) Okay, So in other words, it's a complete waste of our time if we're just focusing on ourselves and trying to be holy, but we're not actually helping anyone else. In fact, that's like a contradiction in terms. We cannot become holy if we're completely self-focused. So this is the mission that we're kind of born into as baptized Christians, to sanctify ourselves and to sanctify the world around us. Now, it is one thing to be born to carry out a mission. It's another thing entirely to actually have the maturity and the skills to carry out that mission. So, for example, we can think of like the Lion King, right? So Simba is born to be a king and he knows that. But at first, he really does not have the maturity to perform that role. Like when he's a kid, his idea of being a king is just like being the boss of everyone. And he has to go through his whole early 20s Hakuna Matata phase before he's mature enough to actually stand up and be a leader and to give himself to others. Or we can think of the movie Princess Diaries. You know how like Mia Thermopolis finds out that she's actually born to be a queen. And at that point in her life, she's like 16. And the only thing that she's thinking about is getting her first foot pop and kiss. (laughs) And then by the end of the film, she's gone through all of these trials and tribulations and she's matured and she ends up delivering this speech in front of everyone where she says, I've realized how many times in a day I use the word I. And then she goes on to talk about how she's learning that her mission is to look outside of herself and to give herself to others. And that's maturity, right? So it's exactly the same in the spiritual life. We need spiritual maturity in order to carry out our mission of sanctity and apostolate, especially apostolate. Like we need to develop strength and courage and wisdom, not only to be holy, but to bring Christ to the rest of the world. Now, the kind of physical, psychological maturity that we see in, you know, things like The Lion King and Princess Diaries That's not the same as spiritual maturity. One of the things that differentiates the two is that physical psychological maturity occurs over time as a response to the material world. Okay, it's tied to our material bodies. So, you know, we physically mature as we experience events and interactions with people and time-bound experiences that occur sequentially throughout a person's life. So as we get older, generally, we become more mature. Now, this is not the case when it comes to the spiritual life. Spiritual maturity comes about not as a response to material things, but as a response to spiritual things, as a response to grace. 
So we become spiritually mature when we receive and accept all of the graces that we need to be able to carry out our mission. Now that can occur at any age. Even when we're a baby, we can receive those graces. So this is something that St. Thomas Aquinas talks about. He says, age of body does not determine age of soul. Even in childhood, man can attain spiritual maturity. So what matters isn't how old we are. What matters is the nature and the amount of grace that we receive. And we can receive all those graces all at once as well. It doesn't have to come in dribs and drabs sequentially. And this is where confirmation comes in. So in baptism, we are born into the Christian life. We receive sanctifying grace and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we have this call to holiness and apostolate. And then in confirmation, we are flooded with the Holy Spirit. So all of those gifts that we received in baptism are strengthened and deepened. And in addition to that, we receive all of these extra graces that we need to reach spiritual maturity so that we can carry out our Christian mission. And we see this happen at Pentecost, right? Like with the apostles, Prior to Pentecost, in many ways, you know, we can see how they have physically and psychologically matured. Like they've been listening to and learning from Christ for three years. They've seen him rise from the dead. They saw him ascend into heaven. Like they know he's God. And yet they're still hiding in the upper room for fear of the Jews because they're spiritually immature. They don't have the gifts that they need yet. It's not until the Holy Spirit descends on them that they're all suddenly able to go out and carry out their mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Okay, so in point 1303, the catechism summarizes the effects of confirmation. So this is where we get a little bit more specific, right? Like we know that we receive the Holy Spirit in confirmation, but what specifically does that mean? So this is where the catechism kind of breaks that down. First of all, We grow in divine filiation. So divine filiation is just a fancy way of saying that we are children of God. So in confirmation, our relationship to God as our father is deepened. Secondly, we become more firmly united to Christ and to his church. And then thirdly, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we can see that the whole Trinity is present. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God around me, God beside me, God within me. Okay, Our relationship with God is strengthened all round. Now, returning to this idea that we receive the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that those seven gifts of the Holy Spirit that we received in baptism are strengthened. So we grow in wisdom knowledge, understanding, and counsel. So in other words, we get better at knowing God, understanding him, and then sharing him with others. We also grow in fortitude, which is another word for strength. And we can really see how fortitude is necessary, especially today, if we're going to live out our you know Christian mission in the world. We also receive an increase in piety, So what's piety? Well, John Paul II talks about it as being the gift of reverence for what comes from God. Okay, now that doesn't mean that we get around looking all holy, holy all the time, like super reverent, walking around with prayer hands. Okay, piety is more like a kind of refinement, like we understand and respect the sacredness of sacred things. And then finally, we grow in fear of the Lord. Now, Fear of the Lord does not mean that we're scared of God because God is our father who loves us. Pope Francis talks about how fear of the Lord is kind of like a little alarm that goes off in our souls whenever we're in danger of getting too far from God. So it's like a fear of losing God that's born out of love for him. 
So Pope Francis says, it's not a servile fear, but rather a joyful awareness of God's grandeur and a grateful realization that only in him do our hearts find peace. So we love him so much that we don't want to lose him. So those are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they are like the tools that we need to carry out our mission as Christians. It's kind of like in Lord of the Rings, right? When Frodo receives his mission to take the ring to Mordor, he's also given a bunch of gifts that help him to carry out that mission. So he gets his special elvish armor to protect him and his fancy glow-in-the-dark sword, and he even gets his best mate Samwise to accompany him. And so it's the same with us. When God sends us out on this mission, he also gives us the gifts that we need to carry it out. And then on top of all of this, on top of this increase in the seven gifts we received in baptism, in confirmation, we also receive an additional specific grace that the catechism refers to as the strength of the Holy Spirit. And this strength allows us to spread and defend the faith, to confess the name of Christ boldly and never to be ashamed of the cross. So in other words, the Holy Spirit in our souls acts as like a rocket fuel that allows us to share Christ with others without fear. In the last episode, we talked about how baptism leaves an indelible mark on our souls. Okay, a mark that says, I belong to Christ. Well, the same thing happens in confirmation. So in point 1296, the catechism tells us that in confirmation, we're marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. So what's the seal of the Holy Spirit? Well, it says three things. First of all, it says, I totally belong to Christ. So that baptismal seal, I belong to Christ, is reinforced and deepened. Secondly, it tells us that we are enrolled in the service of God forever. So in other words, we like wear our spiritual job title on our souls for life. Yeah, We're not just children of Christ now. We are children on a mission. Like the Blues Brothers, you know how everywhere they go, they announce that they're on a mission from God. That's like us. Wherever we go, it's imprinted on our souls. I'm on a mission from God. And then thirdly, this seal of the Holy Spirit indicates the promise of divine protection So the Holy Spirit says, I am looking out for this child of mine forever. Okay, And that's marked on our soul forever. And it's important actually to make note here of the fact that this mark, this seal of the Holy Spirit, it's not just an external sign. It's not like a name tag that we wear on our souls. It's actually something much deeper. So the catechism in point 1305 refers to it as a character. And a sacramental character, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, is a sort of quality or state made inherent in the soul. So in other words, this indelible mark actually changes who we are. Our identity inherently shifts in baptism and confirmation. We become children of God who are on a mission and who are loved and protected by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's why we can't receive confirmation and baptism more than once, by the way. Once we receive that mark, it can't be repeated, and it also can't be taken away no matter what we do. It's on our souls forever. So, in all of this, we can kind of see how baptism and confirmation are inextricably linked, how confirmation completes the graces we receive in baptism. And bearing this in mind... We can see why in the early church, 
with the first Christians, baptism and confirmation actually occurred at the same time or like directly one after the other. So you would be baptized and then immediately confirmed. Even if you were a baby, that's what would happen. And we see this happening again and again in the Acts of the Apostles and also in the writings of the early church fathers. And in fact, in Eastern Catholic churches, this is still what happens. Confirmation or chrismation, as it's called, occurs immediately after baptism. So it's only in like the Latin rite, the Western Catholic churches, that confirmation was kind of temporarily separated from baptism and occurs later on. But even when that happens, even when a child is confirmed when they're older, the confirmation ceremony always starts with a renewal of the baptismal promises. And this is a way of reminding us of the relationship between the two sacraments. Okay, now why is it that confirmation occurs so much later in the Latin rite, years after baptism? Does it have something to do with the fact that, you know, the child is older now, so they, you know, they can make their own decision about whether or not they actually want to be confirmed a Catholic? Well, no, <laughs> that's actually a common misconception. It actually doesn't really have anything to do with that. As we said earlier, this sacrament isn't actually about physical, psychological maturity. It's about spiritual maturity, which can be achieved at any age. So the reason why confirmation occurs later in the Latin Rite is that the bishop is usually the minister of confirmation. And early in the Christian church, more and more people were getting baptized and it eventually got to the point where the bishop actually physically couldn't be present at every baptism. It was impossible. And so what ended up happening was that the priest would do the baptisms and then there would be like a group confirmation that the bishop would attend. And that's still what happens today. So that's why children are confirmed later in the Latin rite. It has nothing to do with their physical maturity. Okay, what do we mean by later? We should clarify that. Like, how old should a child be when they're confirmed? Well, the Catechism suggests in point 1307 that a good time for a child to receive confirmation is as soon as they reach the age of reason. So the age of reason is just the age at which a child can understand morality and they can start to make their own moral choices. So this actually occurs at a different point for different people. Like there's no definitive age of reason because people, you know, mature psychologically at different rates. The main thing though, is that once a child can understand sin and they begin to fight those, you know, internal and external battles, you want to give them the best possible chance straight away from the get-go, right? You want them to have all the help that they can get. So that's why the church encourages us not to delay confirmation for too long. As soon as a child reaches the age of reason, then it's appropriate for them to get confirmed. So prior to confirmation, it's really important that the candidate is really, really well prepared. Because, okay, think about it. You wouldn't give someone all of the tools that they need to carry out a mission, but then not tell them what the mission is or just leave them to figure it out on their own. It's like if Frodo had been given his armor and his sword and his Samwise, and then he was told, okay, now go. <laughs> and it's like, what, what do you mean? Go where? Do what? Why? <laughs> so it's the same for us. Candidates for confirmation need to know why they're being confirmed, what their mission actually is and who they are carrying it out for. So the Catechism in point 1309 says that preparation for confirmation should aim at a more intimate union with Christ, okay, so increasing our prayer life, a more lively familiarity with the Holy Spirit, and a sense of belonging to the church. Because if we don't have those things, 
then it's going to be really difficult for us to get much out of confirmation. We talked about this in the last episode, that God will fill whatever vessel we bring him. And we can return here to the idea that when we get confirmed, we don't always kind of look or feel like we're sort of on fire with the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we've talked about this before, the action of the Holy Spirit in our soul is often going on way down deep and it may not be immediately or obviously perceptible. So we shouldn't panic that there's something wrong because we didn't feel much when we got confirmed. That is fine. It's like when you get dental work done and they numb your mouth. Just because you can't feel the tools working doesn't mean nothing is happening. But sometimes it can be a matter of a lack of preparation. So, I mean, you can think of, you know, a kid whose family doesn't really go to church that often and they're kind of doing the confirmation thing because they go to a Catholic school or because it's important to grandma. So they get a few basic classes about the gifts of the Holy Spirit from the parish, but none of that stuff is really being supported or reinforced at home. They don't really know how to pray. And then they go and they get confirmed and they're like, well, that did nothing. And it's like, well, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Like the Holy Spirit isn't going to beat the door down and force his way in. He's just going to fill up whatever space you've left for him. And so we need to create, we need to help these young people to create space so that the Holy Spirit can fill it up when they are confirmed. Now, this process of confirmation involves not just intellectual preparation, but also spiritual preparation. So the church recommends that prior to confirmation, not only should the candidate increase their prayer life and grow in friendship with Christ, they should also go to confession. And in fact, if a candidate knows that they've committed a serious sin, like a mortal sin, then they have to go to confession before receiving confirmation. I mean, for one thing, it's deeply hurtful to God and quite a serious offense if we receive confirmation when we know that we're not in a state of grace. You know, it's like Judas giving Christ a kiss when he'd already betrayed him. So that's one thing. And secondly, someone who is in a state of mortal sin actually can't receive the graces of the sacrament. Not because God withholds his grace. He's not sort of snatching the sacrament of confirmation back and being like, no, sorry, you've done the wrong thing. You don't deserve my grace anymore. Bye. (laughs) No. The problem is that if I commit a mortal sin, then I close the door to God's grace. So if I were to receive the sacrament of confirmation in that state, it would be like water poured over a rock. Nothing would go in. Having said that, If I did receive the sacrament of confirmation while I was in a state of mortal sin, the sacrament would still be valid. So what that means is that I wouldn't receive any grace. Okay, I'm not in a state of grace, so I wouldn't receive any grace. But I would still receive that indelible mark on my soul that says I'm a child of God and I'm enrolled in his service. And if I were to go to confession later... You know, even if it were 10, 20 years down the track, if I were to later go to confession, as soon as I was restored to the state of grace, all of those graces of confirmation would then immediately flood my soul because God is merciful and amazing, right? He's just waiting there for us to open the door to his grace. But even if we've only committed venial sins, we should still go to confession before confirmation so that we're as prepared as possible to receive his grace. Now, apart from going to confession and preparing well, there are a couple of other things that typically happen before confirmation. The first is that the candidate will choose a sponsor. So this is someone who is a practicing Catholic who can help the person to prepare. They can pray for the candidate, pray with them. 
and support them in their faith both before and after their confirmation. So kind of similar to a godparent. And in fact, the catechism says that, you know, this is appropriate for it to be the godparent. It doesn't have to be, but it can be the person's godparent. The second thing is that the candidate will usually choose the name of a saint to be their patron. So this could be a saint that has, you know, virtues or characteristics that the candidate would like to emulate. And by taking their name, they are asking that saint to pray for them. And they can foster, you know, a kind of devotion to that saint throughout their life and ask for their help and intercession. Some people actually choose to go by the name of the saint that they've chosen for their confirmation or adopt that name in some way. So I'll sometimes tell people that my full name is Caitlin Mary Bernadette West because Saint Bernadette was my confirmation saint. My grandfather, actually, his confirmation name was great because he went to a Catholic school in like the early 1900s. And it was, you know, when it was time for confirmation, the process was that all of the students just drew a name out of a hat. So they didn't get to pick their saint's name. And you had to just take what you were given. Like there were no swapsies and no takebacks. So my grandfather drew the name St. Joseph out of the hat, which would have been fine, except for the fact that his middle name was already Joseph. So for the rest of his life, he went by William Joseph Joseph, (laughs) which as children, we just thought that was the most hilarious thing we'd ever heard. Okay, but both of these things, choosing a sponsor, choosing a patron saint, it's about more than just, you know, choosing a family friend to stand with you at confirmation or getting a cool new extra name. These things are there for a reason. They are reminders of the fact that we're part of the communion of saints. We have this apostolic mission as Christians, which means that not only are we called to look after others, others are also called to look after us. Like we're never just left to our own devices. This is a really beautiful thing and something that we can take a lot of comfort from. So when it comes to the actual sacrament of confirmation itself, what actually occurs in the sacrament? So if you remember, we've talked about how every sacrament has matter and form. So in confirmation, the matter, the stuff, is the anointing with the sacred chrism and the laying on of hands. Okay, so the sacred chrism is a special oil that's mixed with a perfume called balsam and it's been blessed by the bishop. Okay, so the candidate is anointed by that oil by the bishop. And then the form of the sacrament is the words spoken by the bishop, which are be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. So why are each of these things important? Why do we do those things in the sacrament? Well, the catechism tells us in point 1289 that we're anointed with oil because the word Christian actually means anointed, and it comes from the word Christ. So Christ was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, and then we as Christians are also anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that's what the oil signifies. So St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who was one of the early church fathers, and he was born around the year 313 AD, he talks about how while we see our bodies being anointed with oil, our souls are being sanctified by the holy and life-giving spirit. So the oil is an external sign of a spiritual reality. And then the laying on of hands, that is a thing that we do because that's what the first apostles did. So we read about it in the Acts of the Apostles and also in the early church fathers. That's what the church has been doing ever since Pentecost. And then one final question is, why is it the bishop who administers the sacrament of confirmation? Because we've mentioned that a few times. It's always the bishop. 
Well, again, this goes back to the scriptures, to the day of Pentecost. So it's summarized really well in The Faith Explained. It says that Saints Peter and John made the Holy Spirit come down on the baptized Christians by laying hands on their heads. Before they died, the apostles gave their successors this power of passing on the gift of the Holy Spirit. A bishop is a successor of the apostles. He has the power to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to other Christians. Okay, so basically this is something that has been passed down through the bishops from the apostles. But even though it is usually the bishop who administers the sacrament, in cases of strict necessity, a priest can carry out the sacrament of confirmation so long as they use the oil that has been blessed by the bishop. So usually it's at Easter time, the, ble- the, the bishop will bless the oil for the whole year, and then the priest has to use that oil if they're going to carry out the sacrament of confirmation. So this is actually what happens in Eastern Catholic churches. You know how we talked about how confirmation happens immediately after baptism? The priest will perform both of those sacraments, but he'll use the oil blessed by the bishop. And even in the Latin rite, you know, if there's a situation of necessity, so for instance, if someone is about to die and you can't get the bishop there, the priest can perform the confirmation. And that's because, you know, the church's main priority, you know, she's not rigid, right? Her main priority is that people receive the grace of the sacraments. Okay, so that is everything for confirmation. Next episode, we are going to start talking about the Eucharist. Oh my gosh, guys, I, <laughs> I've actually been looking forward to this episode since like the podcast started. I am so excited. This is like one of my favorite topics of all time to talk about. I can't wait. Um, have the best fortnight and I will talk to you in two weeks. Bye.